Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Welcome to Marmalineal Property with John Pigeon and Emily Wallace. Uh, today on the show, we are talking negative Nancy. What's the worst thing that can happen with property investing or, or property in general? So we're not negative people by any means, Emily, but we're going to talk about the worst case because I think we can overcome some fears by just outlining just how bad things are and what we can do to prevent those things happening, Emily. Yeah, good to be prepared. And like you said, we're not negative people. We're probably just more of a realist when it comes to personality type. And just on the note of being real and I guess reality, interesting stat for you, John, the average age of a first-term buyer in Australia is actually closer to 40 than it is 30, which surprised me to some degree. And then I was also like, actually, no, that sounds about right. It's 36. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're in your 20s and you're stressing that you haven't saved for your first home or you can't get into the market, just remember that the average age, the average is 36 for someone to buy their first home in Australia. And I think that will only increase, to be honest, over time. So you've got plenty of years to live. The world's not going to fall apart if you don't buy a property by 25. The average age is 36. Mm. So Interesting stat. So reverse the truck up, folks. Don't stress yourselves out. <laughs> I'd be interested to see what our listener group actually averages in at because I would think it's a little bit less in our group. So marketing, if you're listening, uh, get onto that one for us. We'll release the stat hopefully in the next couple episodes. Keep posted. Mm. But for now, let's get into it. Worst case scenarios. Alrighty, so we've bought some land and we're thinking, right, we're going to build on this thing. Uh, It's unregistered. So what's the worst that can happen with unregistered land? Now, I'll I'll kick off with this one, Emily, if if I may. So Mm. the worst case scenario of buying unregistered land and what that means is it's it might be just a paddock at the moment. It's been maybe pegged out by the developer. And it's it's in council to get approved to, to be able to be built on. Now, the developer, when they bought that long ago, would have had a meeting with town planners and said, yeah, look, conceptually speaking, you can build properties on this uh, parcel of land and you can chop it up into X amount of blocks. But it needs to go through the individual approval process with the council. So my biggest worst case with this is the developer or owner of the land gives you maybe a 12-month time frame in which it should be out of council to be registered and then uh, enabled to be built on. So that time can very much blow out uh, through no fault of the developer in a lot of cases. It might be council's a little bit slower because they've got a lot of applications in or it might be uh, even water companies or electricity to get uh, the, the services to the area. So yeah, that's a, a time frame thing for me with unregistered land. Definitely. And so my mind goes to, well, if I've bought it 
and it's unregistered, if it doesn't register for some reason, if it doesn't actually happen, do I get my money back? Like how yeah. would that work? Yeah, so in 99% of the cases, when you buy unregistered land, you don't need to pay for it or you can't pay for it. You can't get finance on it because it's not its actual individual lot right yet or right now. So you might pay a holding deposit, maybe one or two K and that is fully refundable or should be. So make sure if you're going to commit to something like that, that might be 12 months, 18 months away, you need to understand or or sign off on the fact that it's fully refundable if you don't proceed or if they don't proceed. But uh, generally speaking, uh, it, it does get registered. It's just a case of when. Yeah, there you go. Now, another worst case scenario, which actually happened to a client of mine recently, and it's the first time I've navigated it, but it's a question that I've actually seen pop up in the Facebook group as well. Uh, what happens if a vendor dies between you buying the property and the settlement? Oh, this one's for you for sure. Yeah. <laughs> John's like, um, <laughs> handball. No, we do that to each other because, you know, we both have different experiences. So I only recently found out the process because it happened to, to a client of ours. And basically what needs to happen is it is a process and it can really delay settlement. And in the case of our clients, it delayed it about, six weeks in the end, which really put them out because they had already given notice on their rental property. They had nowhere to go. And lucky for them, their rental that they were in, uh, they didn't have a new applicant ready to go. So they actually were able to stay a bit longer. The landlord let them. That was great. But what actually happened when the vendor passed away is it is on the vendor's side to notify the conveyance side to notify the sales agent and to ultimately notify the buyer. And that needs to happen quite swiftly because depending on the probate and depending on who has been appointed the power of attorney for that particular individual, it is a process within the courts and it's not an overnight process. I can tell you that much. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. it's, It's quite difficult and it's quite awkward to a degree because the family is mourning the loss of their, their loved one. And you're there trying to get your property settled. It's a very tricky situation to be in. It does resolve. It is resolvable. It's just going to take some time for the legalities to unfold in the background. Yeah, wow. And percentage-wise, like that must be 1% of cases or less that that occurs. It's really unlucky for everyone involved, isn't it? Um, What what if the, the vendor doesn't have a will? That's another set of complications. Very much so because what it ultimately comes down to is who can accept the funds you know, as a settlement's going through and authorise that settlement is to happen. So, yeah, if you don't have a will or you don't have a power of attorney in place, and maybe a timely reminder for you, if you do own a property uh, or you've just bought a property, have you updated your will and have you updated your financial and medical power of attorneys? Because um, for a lot of young people, they think, oh, I don't really need a will, not going to die anytime soon. That's as soon as you have an asset, as soon as you have something that needs decisions made on it or dispersed, you should have one in place. Get, so Get onto it, peoples. Get onto it. Okay. Cross-securitization, what is it and what are the risks? Well, the risks are high and I don't say that to scare you but just to uh, get you to ask good questions of your mortgage broker or the lender. So cross-securitization basically means you've got one property uh, which has some equity in it and then you go to buy a second property and the bank that you're working through basically says, well, we'll lend you all of that money for that next property, uh, but basically we're using the value of your 
first home um, to cover the loan on the second property, right? So now that's common, uh, but it's all in the wording of the loan documents because um, an easy way to see this is uh, or way to avoid this is to have three loans in that situation. So you'd have a loan for your first home, you would have the equity release for your next home and then the loan for that the, the remainder of that, so the extra 80% or 90%, whatever that may be. So you may you end up with three loans. And if you've got that, that pretty much means that you wouldn't be cross-securitized with the first property. But if you've just got one big loan sitting there across two properties, all right, that's, uh, that's basically an alarm bell to say you are cross-securitized. Now, all going well, you keep paying the bills, the mortgages, uh, and the tenants keep paying their rent and you don't lose your job and, and the properties go up in value, then no problems at all. But what I've seen in the past is investors come to us that are cross-securitized with maybe one, two, three, four, five properties, all with the same lender. They've, they've got to be with the same lender in this case. And they're leveraged at 90% of its value meaning that uh, they want to go and refinance to another lender, but they can't do that unless they pay LMI. And LMI on two, three, four properties does add up, right? So all absolutely fine as long as everything's getting paid and that you're getting the income coming coming in. Uh, but if, it, if that stops for some reason or another, then that's when you can be in trouble because you're uh, against the barrel on that one particular lender. Now, just to add to that, there are also complications when you sell. So if you sell a property, the bank says, well, we've used the value of the other property. We're now going to value this other property that you've got cross-securitized against it. If that property value has gone down, uh, they take the proceeds from the sale of the other property and pay down the loan on your behalf. They don't actually need your permission for that. So uh, again, I've had a situation where a client is expected to get a nice juicy amount upon sale. Uh, Before settlement or, or on day of settlement, the bank has transferred that um, I suppose, profit and paid down the loan on the other property without, without their permission. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, I know people do it out there. You just need to be very wary of the consequences. And presumably that's in the T's and C's of the loan, right? It's just that people don't read the fine print and aren't aware of it. And so when that profit gets put into paying down um, the loan on the other property, it would come as a shock if you weren't across it. So it sounds like having a good broker who knows policy as well as loan structure to prevent your risk is going to be really key when it comes to things like this, particularly if you own multiple properties. Um, it can be dangerous territory if you're putting too many eggs in one basket. Yeah, correct. So how to avoid this? Uh, you can use the same lender for multiple properties, but just have them separated from each other. And that is, as you said, in the loan documents and your broker is across that or just use multiple lenders. But in today's lending environment, they very much give you an incentive to stay with them or to add, uh, bring your other properties across to them because uh, they obviously want all of your business. Mm-hmm. Now, another worst case scenario, which again pops up quite frequently and particularly for those bidding at auction or placing unconditional offers, meaning that the offer you place on a property when you go to buy it is not subject to obtaining finance or maybe a building and pest inspection. 
And the worst case scenario is what happens if the bank doesn't value the property at what you paid for it? So let's use this in real life figures because it doesn't happen very often, John. Do you know what? I've really, in my time, I have not seen it happen. It is more risky with extremely long settlements, uh, particularly to do with land. um, If an area goes backwards, not, not forwards, but Let's do an example of a property. So let's just say you paid $700,000 for a property, unconditional. So you didn't have a finance clause in there where the bank would come and value it. Now, one thing to note is the bank's value, regardless if you're having the clause, the banks have to value the property, whether that be via a desktop valuation, which means their computer spits out a number, or they do a curbside valuation, which means they literally go to the curbside and cite the property to make sure it exists and, and they assess it, or a full valuation where they actually inspect the property and walk through. Regardless of any conditions you have, the bank must do that. So let's just say you paid $700,000 for a property, unconditional, and the bank values the property at $650,000. So there's a $50,000 gap between what you paid versus what the bank thinks the property is worth. Now, that's a big gap, mm, really. It is. Not, not easy to digest. Now, there's a couple of situations that would unfold in this worst case. Number one is, particularly liaising with your broker, is you could potentially look at getting another lender to value the property and maybe their valuation would come in higher than what the current one is coming at, right? Might bridge the gap a little bit more. Might not jump all the way up to 700,000, might jump up to 680 and your gap is $20,000. But ultimately, if you have a gap, you have to come up with that money. You have to come up with the gap. Uh, And that can be a real strain, particularly on first home buyers to find extra cash that they were not banking on having. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. So when you say they're coming up with that money, they'll they'll lend you a maximum amount, won't they? So basically you've got to check what your borrowing capacity is and and you might buy a property or or look to buy this particular property that Emily's talking about, and you may be able to have a borrowing capacity that's higher than the price you're going in with. That might help you out a little bit, but generally speaking, you, you, there's going to be, if you're lending at 90% or 80%, you're going to have to chip in a portion of that out of your cash or equity that you've got available. So you really need to have those buffers uh, and, and the worst case scenarios sorted. And I guess a preventative measure on this to avoid a worst case scenario, if you can, and if you're a little bit unsure, there's not enough sales evidence to suggest that this property is worth X amount. Maybe it's a unique unicorn property that only comes up once every two months. Uh, If that's the case, instead of putting a full subject to finance clause, which can take a fair bit of time and can be less attractive to a vendor, what you could do is put a subject to valuation clause. And it will literally state that the valuation must come in at contract price or higher for this condition to be met. And if it doesn't, the buyer can withdraw from the contract with all monies paid refunded to them. And that is a really safeguarding um, clause that you can put in, seek out some advice from a conveyancer as to the wording, but that's a measure you could put in place to avoid this worst case. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned the property valued at 700, sorry, purchase price 700, 50 grand low comes in at 650. The bank's willing to lend you up to 80% of the valuation price. In that example, you would be required to put in an extra 40,000. So if you haven't got that 40, Mm. as you said, uh, 
you need to look for another lender or you need to pull out of the of the deal and have those clauses appropriate in your in your offers but you mentioned desktop curbside and and full valuation we actually had a desktop val done by a broker on a property a couple of months back and that, that actual desktop came in low which was extremely surprising. It was like it was only $10,000 or something, but uh, we then straight away ordered a full valuation because we knew that we actually got ourselves a discount, not not bought on price, and, and the full val came in on dollars. So again, asking the right questions of your broker and also having the broker uh, strategically thinking to say, well, if they can do a desktop, desktop val and it comes in on val, perfect. Let's just, uh, comes in on purchase price, sorry, just get that done. But if, uh, if it does come low, then talk about the scenarios. Yes, for sure. We can take a quick break and come back with some more worst case scenarios that you need to be prepared for. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help, and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Now, we hope to hell that this one doesn't uh, happen, Emily. The mm. property burning down. Oh, ouch. Hot. That's, that's going to hurt. <laughs> so we're in the midst of buying the property and the property burns down on us in between going unconditional and the property settle. Mm-hmm. What do we do? Well, but the biggest thing here is the timing of your insurance and where the liability actually lies. So is it the vendor's liability once it's under contract or is it the buyer's? And you'll actually find that this varies state by state as to what's put in a contract and who is liable for damages during that period, which can be 60, 90 days, can be an extended period of time and this could happen. So one uh, way to navigate this and to avoid extreme loss is to actually take out insurance as soon as you have an unconditional signed contract rather than, and a lot of people do wait until the actual settlement day. Mm. Yeah. So what you're saying is, again, real life example, if going unconditional was, uh, let's say the 30th of May and settling was the 15th of June, just pulling Mm -hmm. numbers. No, sorry. Let's make it longer than that. Let's say 30 June, right? Yes. 
That's a month away. You're saying we want insurance on the 30th of May, which is the unconditional date, not the settlement date. Correct. So that you cover for that period of time um, and that if something does happen, you're insured. Yeah. Which is a really minimal cost, isn't it? Like two weeks, four weeks, six weeks of insurance is is very minimal. And again, it's just a way of safeguarding your, your future asset. Correct. Um, seek advice, of course, as always, as to what that needs to look like and what the policy must have in it. The banks will require you to have um, insurance when you t- take ownership of the property, yes. but the gap in between, you need to be across the contract, who's liable and how can you minimise your risk? Because unfortunately, these things can happen. Mm. Flooding, burning, damages, maybe an, a brazen break-in. Yes, these things can happen. Yeah. So if you use a, a broker to get your insurance sorted, great. You can you can talk to them about it. Um, but what concerns me with online policies, like I, I took one out the other day where with the click of a few buttons, we've all of a sudden got uh, building and landlords insurance, right? I didn't actually speak to anyone about this. I needed to read the product disclosure statement and hope that everything was okay. I, I still wasn't actually that comfortable with it because it was just such a simple process and I'd already paid my money. So let's talk to someone and and discuss these certain situations. Now, you don't have to be fearful of absolutely everything going wrong, but you do need to cover the, uh, the I suppose, the more common ones. Correct. Now, another one that pops up, particularly when people are buying a property that's currently tenanted, and there's two avenues of this. So the the worst case scenario is around the tenants not moving out of a property. Now, this could be of a property that you already own. It could be a property that you're going to buy. It could be that you've actually asked for vacant possession of the property upon settlement and the tenant refuses to move out. Or it may be that you've actually taken on a tenancy that might end, you know, three months after you've actually taken ownership of the property and then you plan to move into it as your first home. So what happens when a tenant doesn't move out? Again, worst case and doesn't happen super often, but it can happen and you really need to understand your rights and how to go about it. So the tenancy acts are state by state. So first things first, there is no national rule for this. But in my experience and exposure to this, it is that the uh, the worst case scenario is the police can actually get involved to vacate tenants who have outstayed their lease and simply will not move on from the property. Mm. So the, the tenancy tribunal has a big part to play in this, uh, I would imagine? Yeah, correct. So there's a number of steps that go before the police get involved. Obviously, the notices um, actually physically attending the property and asking the people to vacate, maybe they weren't aware, you know, all these sorts of things that, that can happen. But there's some liability on the property manager to make sure that these things are actioned and then the tenancy tribunal to ensure that the message is getting across to the tenants. And then ultimately, if push came to shove, it's it's uh, an eviction that could be executed by the police. Mm. So it wouldn't be that normal for the the owner not to want to get out because they're the ones selling the property it's it's more the the tenant having an issue um Correct. As, as you said they may not have even been notified they should have obviously by the property manager but uh yeah in in some cases there there may be some ignorance there and and it's uh they're essentially squatting so that needs to be rectified and yeah your property manager needs to be all over that and that's part of recruiting a very good efficient and fast-thinking property manager. 
And just on the note of reducing risk, if it is the case that you've bought the property uh, and there's a tenancy in place at the moment, but you want it subject to you know vacant possession, I would push hard on the vendor giving you vacant possession and vacating the tenants before. It might mean that you need to take a lot of a longer settlement period, but that ensures that the property will be vacant and that if they don't meet that condition of it being vacant, particularly when you go and do your pre-settlement inspection, the settlement simply won't happen and it will just hold until it is vacant and it's the current vendor's issue to deal with, not yours inheriting a problem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, very good. Now, there's uh, vicious r- rumours floating around and we're not one to spread rumours, but uh, Ooh, rumors. There, there are <laughs> some rumblings that a major builder may have uh, have some finance difficulties. Now, yes. without mentioning names, uh, when you're building a, a, a house, whether that be to live in or as an investment, there's always that chance that someone that's building it has some finance difficulties, right? They're, so... Uh, because the time period is obviously not getting this done in three, four weeks, it may be a six, nine, 12 month um, journey that they're taking. So how do we overcome this? Uh, or how do we forecast th- things like this happening? It doesn't happen often, just like the house burning down or the vendor passing away. But we've got to be thinking when we're doing our due diligence. So the first thing I would say is, we've got to understand how long the builder's been around uh, and what does their cash flow and and uh, finances look like. And you can actually ask for that. So it should be common knowledge uh, within the company that you can get a copy of uh, of the profit and loss to understand what their what the book looks like to be able to see that they're very much financial. And through these last few years, obviously with COVID, uh, there's been issues in obviously time delays through supplies. There's been time delays due to people not being able to work. So it has put a lot of pressure on a lot of businesses, including builders. So that's the first check I would do before engaging the builder. But what it really comes back to is home warranty insurance. So you take out or or get home warranty insurance on the build in the event and one of those events being that the builder um, goes broke or can't complete the builds through some way, shape or form. So then that's when the home warranty insurance kicks in. And is that something that would be common knowledge? Like obviously, John, you do a lot more in the building space than I do in terms of um, house and land or newer homes. Is that something that the builder would make known to the person buying? Yeah, correct. So they should be sending that through. They should be communicating with you uh, and and presenting documentation to that effect. Um, you you you, yep. you shouldn't be starting the build without that insurance in place. And again, if you're a first time punter out there that's doing this, they're just some of the questions you need to be asking. What's my responsibility? What's your responsibility? And make sure that that's all all done and in place before we uh, before we proceed. Definitely. And I think track record more generally, I came into a situation recently where someone wanted to buy you know, a, an apartment off the plan in a complex and it was the developer's first development, right? Mm. And we're in uncharted territory at the moment in terms of the building sector and materials and labour and everything. And I just really warned them with caution to be so careful because you've got no track record and you're really you know, going on a whim to ensure that they deliver uh, and trusting them in the process. So yeah. ultimately, it would be advisable not to be part of someone's first ever build or development because they've got nothing to go off. 
great if it turns out well, but mm. how are you to know that could be the case? So Correct. do your homework and, and to go with someone who's got a great track record and, as you said, you can see the books um, yeah. and make sure that they're, they're yeah. all Yeah, look, it's not totally foolproof and in this example, that build has been around for for 100 years. So mm. the, it's not guaranteed but you, the more questions you ask, the, the more comfortable you, you feel and, uh, and potentially pick up something that doesn't smell right. Now with uh, that first time, we're here to support first-time startup businesses but not probably to the tune of spending five or 600K to support them would be my thoughts as well. Correct. Mm. Now just as a final uh, worst-case topic, one that comes up often, particularly when people are going for pre-settlement inspections, is to do with fixtures in a property. So it's around like, what if the vendor has specific fixtures that they have removed? Now, I can't remember if I told you this or someone else about the incident where a, a vendor removed a tree, a big oak tree that was sentimental. And I'm talking like the diameter of of the roots of the tree were like over a meter wide right right? yeah so they removed this tree and it left this massive hole and they said oh that tree's sentimental but we'll replace it with something similar (laughs) very costly exercise but it got me thinking about the point of what is deemed a fixture Mm. and even light you know nice um light shades that people put to dress up the house integrated fridges is a really common one um picture hooks are probably a bit more minor but understanding what is a fixture, the TV brackets are the most common ones. Do they remain with the house or do they get patched up if they get taken with the TV? Yes. So in worst case scenarios where things that have been removed that you thought were a fixture, the only way to prevent this is to actually itemise the fixtures in the property when you look at the goods sold with property part of the contract. Mm. If there's anything you're unsure of, put it in that section of the contract. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, that's an interesting one, the old oak tree. Pretty hard to replicate a 100-year-old oak tree, isn't it? Yeah, uh, they actually ended up putting it, the exact one back because they couldn't find something similar that was big enough to cover the hole. But it just made me laugh because some vendors do have sentimental value and they assume that it's there so they can take it. But, you know, fixtures are fixed yes including trees <laughs> trees you can't just take them <laughs> no yeah but as you said jot them down if if you're the vendor in question yeah if you want something that's sentimental absolutely take it with you but just put it in the contract so everyone's aware of that yeah make it known if you're the vendor just put excluding xyz yeah. if you're the buyer then putting including xyz yeah absolutely yeah look i'm sure as you're listening, you're thinking of a lot of other worst case scenarios and, and issues that you may come across as a, as a property buyer uh, or even seller. But we've just covered a few today. If you've got others that you think, yeah, I wouldn't mind Emily and John thrashing that out, then yeah, put it into the Facebook group or do, uh, do what you want to do to send it through to the group and, uh, and we'll try and thrash it out for you. Definitely sounds like a plan. Well, as I said at the beginning, we're realists not negative people. So hopefully that's given you a reality on what can possibly happen in the probably less than 1% of cases, but good to be across. And yeah, we look forward to bringing you another episode next week. We're always open to ideas for episodes as well. If there's something you think we haven't covered off on in enough detail, please let us know uh, and we'll be sure to do that for you in the future. Absolutely. All right. It was a pleasure. As always, speak to you next week. Bye.
We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education. That's why we make this podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next steps. I've created the Solvair Online Academy, open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors, where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space. And if you're a first home buyer, I had the course just for you. Everything from pre-approval all the way through into your settlement and everything in between. How to place an offer, how to bid at auction, what to even look for at an open home and what questions to ask the agents. It's all covered in my online course. Follow the links in the show notes to sign up and get started today. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 